Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, your weekly podcast that reminds you that there's people who become cool by doing cool stuff. I think that people get the direction of it mixed up. It's not that people are cool so then they do cool stuff. People become cool by doing cool stuff. That's, um, that sounds very dramatic because I have something in the back of my throat. Are you saying actions matter? Yes. Cool. Yeah, it matters less what you believe in, more what you do. Cool. But what I have done is have Joelle Monique on as a guest. What's up? How are you? Oh, man. I am. Here, I've been trying new things and they're going well. I'm probably the most hydrated and well-rested I've been in my adult life. So, you know, happy things. Yeah, your water bottle looks awesome, by the way. Thank you. I got it for free. It is the only thing that's ever gotten me to drink my daily recommended amount of water. Um, I call it my emotional support water bottle. Mm -hmm. It is cleaned once a week. I I, I mean, consistency. Love love to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well... Oh, I have to do the rest of the intro credits. The other voice oh, is yeah. Sophie. Hi. Hi, Sophie. That's me. I am not and... well-rested or hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also here. Yes. <laughs> I got really excited yesterday. I got these, um, I've been hiking, and so I got these, like, fancy electrolyte mixes um, mm. that are not... But I, I tried it while I wasn't hiking yesterday, and it's, like, the saltiest, craziest fucking thing. Uh. I don't know how I feel about it. It's like when you drink a Gatorade, you absolutely don't need one. You're like, what is, it's like yeah. sugary and sweet, but also kind of salty. And your body is like, we don't need it. It's it's too much. Yeah. It's just like, let's done? get through you as quickly as possible. Having that exactly. one leftover Gatorade that you had when you were like sick and then you drink it yeah. and when you're not sick and you're like, this is not it. I do not want this. Yeah. Or need this. <laughs> oh, I like this intro. Wait, we have to do the Thank rest you. of it. Well, okay. Um, so... Ian is our audio engineer and our 
theme music was written for us by someone who is, actually, I was going to say someone who's not a woman, but she actually is a woman, but her name is Unwoman. Yep. Um, that's who, that's who. You just confuse the shit out of everybody and that's okay. I know. I know. But I'm going to confuse everyone every, even more. Joelle, you ever heard of Breakfast? I fucking love Breakfast. Hell Yeah. It's this my favorite is the, meal of the day. It's my this song. Is the episode it's for the you. best. It's like it's so goddamn good. And I have lots of thoughts on breakfast randomly. Oh man. Listen, okay. you don't know what you just got yourself into. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Today, we're gonna tell a story about breakfast, about why it's important, especially to students. Our cool people today took a long, hard look at what was standing in the way of access to healthy breakfast for their community, and they did something about it. Directly feeding tens of thousands of kids every day. I can see Joelle's face. I know who it is! (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, what was standing in the way of these kids having a healthy breakfast were those classic problems, capitalism and racism. Because today, we're going to talk about the Black Panther Party. And we're going to talk about their survival programs, the most famous of which is their free breakfast program. And how this pressured the U.S. government into forcing, into feeding free breakfast to kids. What a great organization. Yeah. Love us some Black Panthers. Yeah. Elite radicals. They, uh, well, I want to hear something. Well, I'm going to do, I, I actually wrote up a bunch about breakfast so we can talk about Oh my gosh, first. yes. So. There's a slogan, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I was like Googling it and I was like, is this true? And a, a not deep dive into the subject tells me that it was a marketing slogan developed by John Harvey Kellogg in order to move breakfast cereal. That um, demon. That I know, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know more about him? There's a whole opposite of cool people episode about him from behind the bastards. So then people on the internet were like, see, since that's marketing slogan, breakfast doesn't matter. We can all skip it. This is not true. There's been a ton of studies, and I don't know how it compares to lunch or dinner, so I'm not going to be like most important meal of the day, but it is one of the important meals of the day. There are three. Yeah. It's a a pretty classic setup. (laughs) Got going for a long time. Skipping breakfast fucks with your circadian rhythm. It increases your risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and a bunch of other shit. But most important to our story what used to be anecdotal and is now preliminarily proven. Eating breakfast provides short-term cognition and memory benefits. Mm. So if you eat a healthy breakfast, you do better in school. There's noticeable, like, trackable changes, improvements in math, spelling, reading, attention, and memory, as well as reduced frustration, increased attention. Kids aren't falling asleep in class as much. So I hate to say Kellogg was right. But... He wasn't wrong. <laughs> He was on, he knew two things, that you need breakfast and that masturbation leads to evil. Yeah. He was exactly. right about one. He yeah. Was, yeah. He was 50-50. You take what you can get. No, no. We, <laughs> yeah. He would um, be so disappointed with our cereal selections. I know. He made, he made cereal to be the most bland thing. And then people were like, that is not it. What if we just made it out of sugar and corn? Sugar yeah. and corn, everybody? Go for it. And yeah. now cereal is just diabetes waiting to happen. It was a crazy, <laughs> wonderful trip. If you Have you gone back down the cereal aisle recently? Do you eat cereal for breakfast? I do. I eat cereal for breakfast. And I like, I usually pick, I have like a really not impressive grocery store available to me in West Virginia. 
And so I pick the like least the like least sugary but still like a major brand thing that I can find, you know. Okay. Okay. Uh, are we talking like a great nuts? I usually eat like life or crispex. Okay, all right. Classics. Classics. Yeah. What about you? I don't eat cereal for breakfast anymore. I was becoming an eggs and toast girl mm-hmm. when I did the calculations on the calories. And I said, my God, that's so delicious. <laughs> it's such a classic breakfast. I didn't realize I needed to be a farmer working in a field all day to eat it. <laughs> it's yeah. really annoying because it's so fucking good. Yeah. Um, so now I do uh, I either have like fresh fruit or I'll do like a green smoothie. Nice. But before... <laughs> I became the person I am today. I was just mm-hmm. a stoner who was poor. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, cereal is so great because you could eat it for any meal. Yeah. It's also <laughs> like $5 max, right? Or at yeah. least it was when I was buying cereal. I don't know what the prices are now. But so if you accidentally ate too much, you were like, not a big deal. No, yeah. I'm going to go buy another $5 box. A lot of yeah. cereal is actually like gluten free as well, which is good for people who can't eat gluten. Yeah, absolutely. So that's nice. Love that. I think of cereal as a dessert. <laughs> so, Sophie, my, uh-huh. I, where I was going was, oh, oh, Oreos is my supreme cereal. That's very good. It is. I've never tops. heard of this. That sounds amazing. Oh, my God, Margaret. It is so divine. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> it's just like eating ice cream for breakfast. <laughs> ice cream it's might so be healthier. <laughs> One time when I had no money, I, um, but I had these leftover cakes from a like event that no one came to. It was a very not happy period of my life. I like didn't have enough money for food, but I like threw this like anniversary event for this publisher I worked with and like mm-hmm. no one came. And so I had these two fucking cakes and I, I had a science experiment called how many consecutive meals can I replace with cake? Oh no, Margaret. The answer was five. That is, you know, about that. That feels right. I bet at four you were, str- you were like, this fifth meal is probably a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But I absolutely must. When I was in a very similar situation, I was living in a two bedroom with at one point thirteen people. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was yeah. a lovely, <laughs> wild experience yeah. in my early twenties. Uh-huh. Um, many of them were, you know, it was like sex workers, punks. I worked at a pizza place. Yeah. So you bring home the pizza, and everyone loves you every night. And it was the best. It was taken bake. It was like organic taken bake pizza. So it was like Damn. the nicest thing. Did we live we- together? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Margaret, honestly, it was it was just queer kids as far as the eye could see. All of us poor. We got one guy's dad who was a sweet old farmer who did not understand his gay son but loved him regardless. Aww. And he was like, "Yes, I will sign this lease with these two kids you met from high- in college six months ago." <laughs> How did it happen? I don't know, but it was magical. It was a great apartment while it lasted. Uh, but yeah, we would like make pizzas at night someone would get a handle of vodka because it cost 19.99 and we could definitely get that much money together yeah and then we would There's eat- always money for vodka <laughs> there definitely was always money for vodka it's cold in the midwest yeah. um and then in the morning we would eat leftover cold pizza and that yeah. is also a great breakfast i it truly is i think that the breakfast we're going to talk about are going to be healthier than what you and i have discussed I'm so glad eating, but you mentioned children needing to be educated, so I'm I'm glad that their breakfasts are better. <laughs> yeah. So, if there's one thing that Black activists have learned over the centuries in the U.S., it's that learning and education can be weapons in the fight against racism if they're wielded intentionally and not just part of recuperation into the existing system, right? 
and uh, and we see that again and again. Which is to say, sometimes people look at the survival programs of the Black Panther Party and they write them off as like sort of charity or propaganda, kind of like a like a side thing to make themselves popular compared to the real work of running around with guns. But providing food for black children, preparing them for education that they could wield to better themselves in their community, empowered people to confront capitalism directly. It also took an armed militant movement to set up that infrastructure. So I don't want to... I mostly get mad at the fake... Di- people keep trying to come up with these dichotomies where they're like, mm. oh, you're either like down with the militant struggle or you're like doing charity or whatever. It's like... It took one to make the other happen. Yes. Yeah. They're completely um, merged. Do you, the last time I was on here, you recommended such a lovely book that I have cherished uh, called This Nonviolent Shit Will Get You Killed. Yeah. Which is everything to me. And it's been, because it, it's definitely, you're kind of taught, I mean, especially, I don't know what children are taught in schools now, but growing up in like the early aughts, specifically during Black History Month, when you got to learn about, Martin Luther King Jr. and what he was doing and Malcolm X and the bad shit he was doing. Yeah. They were like, that guy was <laughs> violent guy. and dangerous and that's definitely how you don't want to do it. Yeah. This guy literally loved the Lord and that is why we like him. Uh, yeah. Every And when he died, everyone thought he was a saint and so great. Like really, one, this was the <laughs> lesson I learned from like zero to 22. It was crazy yeah. how long that narrative was dictated to me and you really, or at least I'll just speak for myself, I really felt like, okay, if you are nonviolent for long enough, attitudes will change. And especially, you know, in the 90s, you've got Bill Clinton, who people used to very seriously say was the first black president, a mind blowing yeah. time. Yeah. But they like the thought was, well, we're doing a lot better because of the nonviolent stuff. But of course, it, that completely ignored the drug war that was happening. Yeah. It ignored the censorship that was happening across a lot of the black arts, but very specifically rap. It was a crazy time where people were constantly lying to us. Um, and it's interesting now I sort of can't shake knowing what I know. Violence is necessary. It's not courted. It's not invited, but it is necessary to defend ourselves because, you know, if we look at the two yeah. heroes we started with, uh, both ended up dead. Didn't matter <laughs> how yeah. peaceful or, um, you know, prepared they were to incite violence if necessary. Uh, they were both murdered. And so, yeah, to your point, you need both. Yeah. And like, and there's a lot of, and this gets into something that I'm a little bit just going from what I've heard people talking about. It's not part of the script, but like, there's a lot of talk about how as Martin Luther King became more and more like aware and in connection with militant movements and Malcolm X was also moving like more towards in some ways a moderate position, not an unarmed position, but a like, he moved away from the nation of Islam and towards actual mm-hmm. Islam and like, you know, and he, he, he stopped being as explicitly whatever. Anyway, so <sighs> this is possibly also why they like had to die, right? Is because yeah. they stopped being a dichotomy to some degree. This is a little bit off the cuff. I, I, there's probably people who know more about that, but. No, no, but you're, you're hundred percent, right? I mean, I'm not a scholar in it either, but if you look at some of the, especially the very late, like MLK Days, like there's a video where he's walking through the streets of Chicago and he's struck as a dude from the South about how seg- he called Chicago the most segregated city in America. And it yeah. was and in many ways still is. Um, and while he's walking through, a bunch of white people come out, and they start throwing things at him. And you can. I mean, he's he's like enraged. He's so angry. This is like he's been fighting for so long. He's been peaceful for so long. And you 
can't help but understand like my god it's not working is the vibe you get you're like it's just peacefully marching is not going to change these people's minds and yeah they didn't let either of them get to uh start vocalizing that very much before they were taken out it's just crazy yeah well that uh that goes well into well okay to talk about the panthers really quick so you know, the Panthers, they're about both of these things, right? They're about the survival programs and they're about militancy. And it took what might have been the largest coordinated effort of law enforcement, federal, state, and local in the history of the United States to bring them down. It took infiltrators, it took dirty tricks, it took rumor mills and slander and libel and drugs and frameups and police violence and outright assassination to stop them. There's also, and we're going to talk about this kind of near the end, there's a bit of a like they forgot to throw the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom stuff going on that that plagues them uh but they got so much done along the way that even though they like did end up as repressed successfully it was cool Mm. as shit they didn't appear whole cloth out of nowhere to vitalize the civil rights movement um as in in my script now we're going to talk about some of the things that you were just talking about but you know there were armed components of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the U.S. South. Uh, for anyone who hasn't heard, I would recommend listening to me and Joel talking about this last fall. But nonviolence is a tactical choice that lots of people made in the 50s and early 60s. For some people, it's a moral choice, but not all of them. And there was movement after movement that paired voter registration and bus integration with armed self and community defense. The Deacons for Defense and Justice of Jonesboro, Louisiana, are a particularly prominent example of this. Then, just to... to lay out where the Panthers are coming from. And around 1966, the era of civil rights moves into the era of black power. The clearest turning point might have been on June 16th, 1966, when Stokely Carmichael, who is an organizer with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, he gave a speech that included the following bit. This is the 27th time I have been arrested and I ain't going to jail no more. The only way we're going to stop them white men from whooping us is to take over. What we're going to start saying now is black power. And black power is another one of those things that like the way it gets talked about in mainstream education, at least my education, was not a useful way to talk about black power. At all. Black power means a lot of different things depending on who says it and what the context they're saying it in. But the core of it is self-determination for black people. At its more extreme end, it's been used to advocate for black separatism or black supremacy. I don't want to conflate the two. Those are different ideas, right? At its least radical end, it's been used to advocate for like black control of existing infrastructure. Like what if we had all black mayors and black cops and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. right? Most people, at least in my reading, didn't mean either end of this. Um, The Panthers had a saying, all power to the people. And they specifically meant that interracially. Um, And... Black self-determination wasn't going to come at the expense of non-black people. And that's like the the thing that I keep running across, like as I read this and then I think back to my own childhood and being told certain things or whatever, right? Is that like, it wasn't black power means like, I don't know, kill all the white people or whatever, right? It it's means not like, the equivalent of uh, the white power salute that the KKK yeah, does, no. Yeah, exactly. And... An awful lot of the civil rights leaders and organizations that we usually think about as not particularly militant came along with this transition into the black power movement. And this is another part that sort of gets forget about it. Uh, I, went to a, I went to a middle school called Rosa Parks. Okay. <laughs> in, this, um, 
And my my neighborhood was actually like bust to integrate this school because it was Got in a, it. Like, a rich upper middle class white neighborhood. And I mean, I'm I'm a white middle class kid. I'm not that. That's how. Anyway, whatever. I hear you, and I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what we learned about Rosa Parks, at least what I remember uh-huh. learning about Rosa Parks in the middle school named after her, was she was a nice lady who didn't give up her seat. Yes, that's what I learned too. And always old. Like the, yeah. there's a, le- a level of feebleness and mm-hmm. a respect that white people could understand because you would not do this to an old white lady. And a lot of times, I think when, I use white as a, a very pejorative term, but That's like fine. if we if we look at <laughs> yeah. um I think when they think about black liberation, right? Because mm-hmm. that that's typically the goal is just liberation. Yeah. Uh they're like, oh, it will it can only be radical. And if it's radical, it must be violent to me because if our powers are equal, then the lack of power should also be equal. I really think that's the the, the through line for a lot of folks. Yeah, and therefore they can only <laughs> they can only give liberation to the folks that they have given some lim- form of liberation to, right? So, grannies, grannies are fine. They can ride the bus. <laughs> there was a kindergarten teacher at my elementary school who was friends with Rosa Parks, and some kid was like, "She's not dead." <laughs> <laughs> early 90s. Wait, what did they say you cut she, out for a second they're like she's not dead because <laughs> they, wow. in our heads yeah. she was like she was ancient ancient mm-hmm. I went to Rosa Parks middle school while Rosa Parks was alive and I did not know that Rosa Parks was an alive person exactly that yeah. is insane that's crazy yeah what people don't mention is I mean one and I kind of maybe one day she'll actually get her own episode because she's really fucking cool Um, including the bus thing and it was a like conscious strategic thing kind of like how people are like oh John Brown was like a lone wingnut who attacked things he's like no he was part of a major movement to try and accomplish a certain thing and he actually succeeded but how blown was your mind when you learned Rosa Parks was part of a movement yeah active part and an amazing human being yeah I was like what why well who hid this story from us and why yeah my my mind was blown oh yeah. man diving into black history is wild you're like whoa I, I have i'll recommend them at the end i have two mm-hmm. books on um slave rebellions cool i yeah, got them because do. uh yeah you know people are always like oh you didn't fight or oh like our liberation was all peaceful and it's like we've been fighting the whole time they just keep burying these stories yeah. have you heard of fucking nat turner <laughs> like right i mean <laughs> yes like, and he's the most famous of them. He's like actually the only right. name I know off the top of my head, right? Mm-hmm. But there mm-hmm. was like so many of them. And then I, I have this book that I haven't read yet because I haven't done this episode on it yet. But there's a whole like book about women le- leading slave revolts. Yeah. Wait, is it Wake? I'm not sure. It's, I have a it... lot of history books on my shelf oh, <laughs> that man. I haven't gotten I'm to yet. I'm going to find it. We'll talk about it. Okay, cool. So... People miss the parts where Rosa Parks saw Malcolm X as her personal hero. She critiqued gradualism, like the, like, let's slowly make everything better. Uh, she worked alongside organizations with names like League of Revolutionary Black Workers, and she supported the Black Panthers and Angela Davis. And that's besides the point. Rosa Parks was cool. But yeah, by the, by the mid-1960s, the civil rights movement was taking on a new character, a more revolutionary character. All the asking politely wasn't working. Frankly, people weren't asking for like half of what they needed in the first place. And basically mm-hmm. people were like, what if we just lay out our vision for a better world on the table and then fight to bring that into being? 
which is not only the only way you can actually make a you can actually achieve your true goal it's also mm-hmm. a really incredible way to get reforms is to fight for more than what they'll in the end give you you know of course every negotiation you will leave disappointed you can't start at where you want to end this is just a good business tip it's the best tip i ever got mm-hmm. um whatever you think you're owed ask for, like you could double it potentially yeah but just ask for way more you'll be surprised where you end up it'll yeah. all be more than you thought totally and so the other thing that, you know, we talked about this with Martin Luther King a moment, the movement was coming from the rural South into cities across the U.S. And you've got what's called the Great Migration, uh, which is split into two waves when black people left the South in great numbers. For most of the U.S.'s history, about 90% of all black people lived in the U.S. South, with about 80% of them living rurally. It wasn't until 1910 that the Great Migration started, Um, basically as a result of Jim Crow laws, right? As Reconstruction was destroyed by racists. Mm -hmm. And so people who were pissed off about Jim Crow laws and lynchings and the general disenfranchisement were like, all right, we're going to get the fuck out of here. We're we're not getting our 40 acres and two mules that we were promised. And the first wave was huge, but it was actually the smaller of the two waves. And millions of black Americans moved to mostly the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast in this first migration. Others actually moved within the South into cities. But if you want to move into a city, you should put all of your money into gold. Is that is that what we're advertising? <laughs> um, <laughs> the transition threw me. I was like, is this a thing that no they told idea. black people to do? I've never heard of this. It's hilarious. Whatever it is we're advertising is clearly individually vetted by me <laughs> and signed off by Joelle and Sophie and Whoa. not just a system by which we are able to continue to eat food and feed our dogs by selling advertising space. So, here's some ads. Enjoy. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Okay, so that's the first wave of the Great Migration. Then you got World War II, the big war that happened. When the U.S. was like, we're off to go smash racism. Just kidding. We're still segregated. And like, you know, you have the segregated army. Anyway, we've talked about that a couple times in the show about people being like fucking mad at the blatant hypocrisy. So during World War II, you get the start of the second wave. Skilled black workers moved to the West Coast and to the North to work in military things, building airplanes and shit. Between 1940 and 1970, the U.S.'s black population went from rural to urban and down to only about 53% of folks living in the South, and 47% now live elsewhere in the country. This is a bigger migration of people than all of the ones that white people talk about, like the Irish and Italian migrations to the States, which were huge, right? And that was a big, I mean, that's, that's how I ended up here, right? Well, part of me, whatever. But it's not nearly so massive as the great migration and it's not in some ways as culturally important it's it's the speed at which it happened and the impact that has left on our culture is so interesting i feel like because both both my parents grandparents yes Mm -hmm. both my parents grandparents came up during the great migration my mom's family from texas to chicago my dad's family from mississippi and alabama up to chicago Mm -hmm. And but because of that, they were all raised by very southern <laughs> grandparents. And yeah. that's back in the day when you have multi-generational families. It's I think a reason that there remains such a homogeny to black culture across because you know, every black culture, if you look at different pockets across, they're different, but there's like a lot of homogenized threads through us. And I think it's because migration happened so quickly that we, you know. Certain things just linger. And I think there's like a lot of, quote, the traditional Southern ethics, styles of living, mm-hmm. ways of rearing children that remain within Black culture, no matter where you live in the United States. That makes sense. Yeah. 
Okay, so there's a weird coincidence that happened at the same time as black people were moving into cities. Just purely by happenstance, all the white people moved out to the suburbs. Oh, just just because they were just, you know, yeah. it happened. Uh, and oh. what's called white flight and is, I, I don't know if I, there's lots of bad stuff there. I don't know enough heroes to do an episode about that and like redlining <laughs> and all that shit. I'm sure there's people who fought against it. Maybe one day we'll cover it. But anyway, so it, it turns out not just white people in the South were racist, but white people all over the country were racist. Uh, this is shocking to everyone who's listening, I'm sure. <laughs> so, and it's the migrants and their children from the Great Migration who bring us the Black Panthers, uh, starting in Oakland, California. And that's why the Great Migration matters, this story. And they brought with them some rural values, like armed self-defense. There's another place that a lot of the Panthers came from, and that's the U.S. military. Uh, take, for example, I want to use... Um, I've, I've been reading a bunch of books this week, and one of my favorite people is um, a man named uh, Quasi Balagoon, who is cool as shit. And I want to talk about him for a minute because he's so cool. Please do. What a name. A I classic. Know. I know. I think Balagoon is Yoruba, and I can't remember... I didn't... I didn't write down the origin of the other, of Quasi. quasi. Um, so Balagoon grew up in Maryland, where the civil rights movement wasn't so entirely committed to nonviolence. This is actually a thing that I didn't know about by the, when we did the last episode on this, but the Cambridge riot of 1963 was where people protesting segregation were routinely arrested and mistreated. Racists, the riot here is white people being awful. They were setting black businesses on fire and trying to, like at one point they like drove a car into a black neighborhood and started shooting, but then they all had to flee because the black neighborhood started shooting the fuck back. Love it. And Love to hear it. Uh, Cambridge, Maryland was under martial law for a year as a result of these riots. The, the major civil rights leader on the East Shore of Maryland was a woman named Gloria Richardson. And she believed in nonviolence as a strategy, but just a strategy. And black snipers walked on rooftops, waited on rooftops to protest to protect nonviolent protesters from white supremacists. That's the Maryland that Quasi grew up in. So he joins the army because he grows up and that's his option. And he deploys to Germany. And this is the mid-60s. And racist soldiers keep f- fucking with black soldiers. So he mm-hmm. and other folks form a group called De Legislators. And De Legislators just beat the shit out of the racists come through come through legislators yes yeah Uh, i want to quote him directly we blacks who felt we were marked men we had a secret meeting and formed an organization based on fucking up racists we called ourselves de legislators because we were going to make and enforce new laws that were fair from then on every time a racial situation appeared we did too every time white gis ganged up on a black gi We moved to more than even the score. One at a time, we would catch up with them and beat and stomp them so bad that helicopters would have to be used to take them to better hospitals than the ones in the area. We were not playing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A bar. What a bar to set for the group. (laughs) I know. Wow. Afterwards, we would have critiques, just like at the end of war games, get our alibis together and keep the whole thing under our hats. I'm inspired. (laughs) I know. They got away with it, too, because they, because no one talks, everyone walks, because, and they, like, 
they performed it like military missions. They were like, how do we fuck mm-hmm. up this racist? You know? Yeah. And also, there's not much you could do if you're, you're constantly getting your ass pounded. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. y'all could be mad, but you kind of need us here to fight your war. That's actually what you've designed yeah. us to do a little bit. And now we're really good at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you don't want to get stomped, do you? Just stop saying. Re- also, the yeah, bar is so low for the, how to stop getting your ass beat. I Just know. keep your mouth. Stop running your mouth, and then it's over. Uh, br- a beautiful strategy. Brilliant. Yeah. So he spends three years in the military, and then he gets out. He's honorably discharged in 1967. And now he knows how to fight. He knows how to shoot, and he knows how to organize against racists. And there's a a long history of black men in the U.S. leaving the military and being like. Oh, the real enemy is here in the U.S. And suddenly having <laughs> it some sucks tools. when your enemy treats you better than your home country. That's oh, just yeah. gotta be a total mindfuck to be like, oh, okay, how are we better off in Nazi territory? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, fuck. So soon enough, he he moves to New York City. He's organizing rent strikes and volunteering with the Central Harlem Committee for Self Defense. At one point, as a housing protest, he shows up at U.S. Congress at a hearing about housing problems, and he brings a cage full of rats as a visual aid for how black people were housed in New York. Um, He gets arrested for this. He doesn't even release the rats. They said, we don't care if what your visual is true. Yeah. You brought, I have to look at a rat? Send him to prison where there are definitely more rats. Not at all solving the problem. Oh my God. (laughs) Exhausting. He gets out. I don't think he spent too long for that one. Um, he goes. He spends a lot of time in jail, but he gets into black nationalism. His time overseas had put him in contact with Africans, and he started wearing his hair natural. In New York City, he started attending the Yoruba tem- temple. <clears throat> Yoruba being the religion of the Yoru- Yoruba people from mostly what is present-day Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he changed his name to Kwesi Balagoon. And Eventually, the Panthers come to New York, and he joins, and we'll pick up the rest of his story later. I just wanted to do a little aside about Panthers in the military. Riveting. Yeah. I'm in. In October 1966, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense formed in Oakland, California. It was started by two friends, Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. Bobby Seale was born in Texas, moved with his family to the Bay when he was eight. He joined the Air Force. He got kicked out for fighting an officer. Then he went to Merritt Community College with the goal of becoming an engineer. Huey P. Newton was born in Louisiana, and his family fled the racist violence to the Bay. He wound up also at Merritt Community College. This is where they meet and become friends. It's not actually where the Panthers start. but And then there's this whole narrative I know a little bit less about where over at the bigger schools, African students brought the Marxism that had just sent their countries free from colonization So they started talking with folks who went to the community colleges in the area and setting up African study groups. And and that one, I, I, I like that one. I didn't read a book. I heard someone say, so. That is so fast. I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense. That's fascinating. I know. And so that's why I like, even though I, yeah. And Huey and Bobby, both of them are like, Malcolm X is fucking right. Also, Robert F. Williams, the guy from North Carolina who turned the NAACP in his town into a community defense organization, that guy was right too. We should do something about all the fucking racism. Specifically, in this case, they wanted to do something about the racist police. So they started the Black Panther Party for self-defense. A couple years later, it drops the for self-defense and it's just the Black Panther Party. Bobby is the chairman. Huey is the minister of defense. 
Their first recruit is actually yet another Bobby, Bobby Hutton, who was 16 at the time, and he becomes the treasurer. And the first thing they, there's kind of this thing, I don't know if you have it, in the same way that like Rosa Parks is like old in my head. Sometimes when people do things in the 60s, they're inherently old, right? Because they, mm. because it happened before I was born, you know? Yes. I, I don't know about, my parents were born in the late 50s, early 60s, mm-hmm. and I envisioned anyone who was an adult at the time of their birth to be old. Yeah. No matter what they were doing or what time period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but I think it's like really important not to like put them down, but to raise them up to be like the black, the black Panthers is just some people who are like, we have a problem. What can we do about it? Most of them babies. Yeah. Most of them. So very, very, very young or you're like, how not even how, but you're just, it it lends so much space and credit to what is accomplishable if you have a unified goal and their goals were simple and concrete and therefore their plans were effective. And and they lived by the mantra you gave earlier, which is power to the people was the crux of everything they did was like, what if we just educated and gave power, the people, the power to, to make the change, you know, that they want. Yeah. 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 No, they, they, yeah. And I think it's like really telling that they're inspiring across ideological lines and like always have been, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, not always. Like some people hated them, right? <laughs> but like, sure, you sure, know. Sure. Uh, so the first thing they did was community patrols. It was an armed cop watch, basically. And this is before cop watch was like a thing. Uh, and they were like, well, it's legal to carry loaded long, long guns in this city. So we're going to get some shotguns and we're going to follow cops around and tell everyone they're hassling what their rights are. Fuck, that takes some courage. Like Yes, and and again, a brilliant strategy that lends, because if you know your rights, you know them mm-hmm. when you're arrested, you know them when you're sitting in a prison cell, you know them when you're being coerced into giving a statement. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's just such a, it's a, as far as like, act when I think about activism now, and I think especially coming out of a, the era of activism we've come through where it was the visible activism to people outside of the community was often led by quote, an influencer often not actively engaged in the activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a problem. There's been great people on the ground making community moments happen and, and, and making for a lot of change, but it wasn't seen, I think to the great majority of people just by design of the action. And yeah. I just, it's incredible to think about what these guys were doing early and and to think about how dangerous it was yeah totally and like i mean it'll come up a lot of them don't survive you know um yeah but first they have to get some shotguns they don't start out with shotguns (laughs) they don't they need some money but you know who has money uh this isn't an ad transition i thought it was (laughs) i know you do dear listen no uh rich white liberals have money and what sells well to rich white liberals the sort of authenticity of struggle by people of color. So mm-hmm. they bought Mao's little red book in bulk and sold it on college campuses at three times markup to all the like young white communists around. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and they use it to buy shotguns. And they got their logo and therefore their name from the, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, which was an Alabama black power group that was using a Black Panther as its logo. And... I'm like, all right, they didn't come up with a Black Panther. I don't care. They're like some people who, anyway. 
they, I, I mean, listen, this is what happens. You see a symbol, you're like, hey, that feel like that represents me. And then yeah. you adapt it and add it to your. That totally makes sense. The Black Panther symbol looks cold as fuck. That's why you still see so many people in the yeah. free food program shirts. Yeah. Look amazing. Yeah. They got themselves a storefront office and they started a newspaper. It was a small group at first. When an unarmed black man was killed by cops in Richmond, California, the Panthers, who were invited by the man's family, started holding armed rallies to bring attention to that police murder. People started trickling into the party because here are people like fucking doing something. And frankly, I, I read accounts of why people joined the Panthers. And a lot of people say like, look, the nonviolent shit was fine, but it just doesn't speak to me, you know? Um, but people like standing up it, so is nonviolence. I'm not trying to talk shit on nonviolence, right? No. But it's going to reach different people, and yeah, you have to be somebody who can be at peace in a chaotic situation to embrace actual nonviolent activism. Because yeah. the very first thing that happens is they're going to try to incite you into violence, and if yeah. that is not, you know, you can get spit on, you might get hit. Like it, it's so much zen to be consistent in that kind of movement, yeah. as opposed to you know. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. That makes a lot of sense to me. I get why people would be attracted to this approach. Yeah. And there's one anecdote I ran across that I want to share. It's from the foreword to a book whose title I literally cannot say. Um, I'm just going to call the book Just Another dot, dot, dot. It is an autobiography by the Panthers field marshal, uh, Don Cox. It's a brilliant book design cover too, right? Because this is just another in white and then the other words in black. Um, It's like black on black and hard to read. I love it. His daughter was like clearly like mad that she had to publish it under that name, but that was like what he insisted <laughs> on and he had died, right? Anyway, is, this is his daughter writing from the introduction of that book. This is Don Cox, is Don Cox's daughter. Quote, when I was going to a Lutheran school, I wore my hair in a curly afro one day. How proud I was until I got to school. The principal told me that my hair looked a mess. I promptly called Daddy, and I don't remember what I told him, but the next thing I knew, here comes Daddy and about four or five Panthers looking fine and sharp in all black turtlenecks, pants, leather coats, and berets. I never heard my Daddy raise his voice. I think I would have crapped my pants if I did. And when he spoke, he always spoke eloquently and softly and looked you directly in the eyes. For people who didn't know him, that alone could make them crap their pants. I didn't hear what he said to the principal that day, but at the end of the year, I left that school for good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I think that that's like just the, like a, I don't know, that moment of like being like, yeah, there's like, people are going to have some words if you're, you know, <laughs> like. And here come actual heroes. I think it's yeah. interesting. Like, yeah. here come a group of people to defend your right to just exist. Mm-hmm. And I think frequently if that right has been denied to you, especially as a child, my God, like, it's really beautiful that a whole bunch of people came together to make sure that at the very least, nobody was going to fuck with you anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't probably change the rules at the school or whatever. And I'm sure people were still assholes, but at least she knew there were people who had her back. Totally. Totally. But you know, who else has your back? Joelle? Uh, who, who has my back? The products and services that support this show. I feel so supported. That's wonderful. Bean dad, the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. 
Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So, well, you want know the most effective way to get gun laws passed is? Oh, do tell. The answer is, once leftists, especially immigrants and people of color, especially black men, start carrying. Oh, right, because then they feel the need to carry and then the gun laws have got to get more. I, I see the vision. Yeah, I yeah. see the vision. The very first episode of this podcast was about uh, German anarchist immigrants in Chicago. And the first gun laws in that area were passed because German immigrants were using the gun laws to uh, have open carry parades, right, um, for defend themselves as workers. And so Chicago was like, never mind about the guns, no more guns. It took California a little bit. Oh, and then New York goes way back. Before the U.S. was even a thing, there were specific gun laws that they wrote that were like no indigenous people and no Catholics can own firearms. 
really hated the Catholics in New York for a while. What a strange time that was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the Panthers started open carrying lo- loaded long guns in California and the government freaked the fuck out. Republicans, including Ronald fucking Reagan, scrambled to outlaw open carry. This was called the Mulford Act. Republicans, Democrats, and the National Rifle Association all agreed. If black people are carrying guns, guns should be illegal. And this isn't even like my propagandist spin on this. That, that, that I've never read any history that disputes that this is what happened. So on May 2nd, 1967, the Black Panthers entered the national spotlight. 26 armed Panthers showed up at the California State Capitol, like walked into the Capitol building with their guns. This is before the law was passed, so it was legal for them to do so. Six of them, including Bobby Seale, were arrested. And this was incredibly good PR for um, the Panthers. I mean, it probably also like made people even more like, see, this is why we have to ban guns or whatever. But like all over the country, people were like, oh, now we've heard of the Black Panthers and they're fucking cool. <laughs> Hell yeah. So they released their 10-point ten po- ten platform. The very first point is, quote, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. And then the rest of the points, it's things like we want full employment. We want to get the capitalists out. We want housing. We want education that actually teaches people the truth. We want black men to be exempted from military service. We want the end of police brutality. We want black men released from prison. We want trial by actual juries of our actual peers. And the last one was, quote, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. It's so sad that we have got none of those. Fuck. Yep. Fuck. <laughs> That's really devastating. Yeah. But a beautiful list, a, a lovely thing to aspire to. Yeah. They also very shortly after got their first living martyr, not someone who dies. They got a political prisoner, Huey P. Newton, the one of the founders. He gets, we actually don't know what happened here. He was pulled over and arrested and then Two cops ended up shot, and, and Huey P. Newton was also shot. One of the cops ended up shot to death. This was our, after Huey was already arrested. The police's story is that Huey wrestled one of the cops' guns away from him and shot the cop to death, the surviving cop story. Huey's story is that the two cops were shooting at him, but they were standing on opposite sides of him and shot each other. Friendly fire sounds so fucking believable. So just absolutely probable. I know. And like, I also like one Panther later, there's a lot of Panther exposés that come out afterwards. Some of them are like people who Mm. still like the Panthers. Some people who don't like the Panthers anymore and all this stuff. Right. One Panther later claims Huey would drunkenly brag about killing the cop. But honestly, either way is believable. And I kind of don't care. Like, Mm. I'm like, Yep. You're getting arrested by people who are screaming and just as likely to kill you as not and you defend yourself and you manage to do it while you're handcuffed. That's fucking powerful. Or cops are so fucking... Because cops crossfire shoot each other all the fucking time. All the goddamn time. Shoot themselves in the foot, in the groin. Yeah. It's just hit their partners. Just, yeah. Yeah. So he was, uh, Huey P. Newton was arrested and he was convicted of murder in 1968, but his conviction was overturned in 1970. Not that he was specifically, mm, 
I think that it wasn't that he was specifically found innocent. I think it was that they like found that the trial was all fucked up and everything was fucked up about it. And it was clearly all a setup and all this shit. But along the way, while he's in jail, the Free Huey campaign spreads across the country and the Panthers are off to the races. One of the things I read about it is that like um, white radicals would wear a honkies for Huey pin. Okay. Uh, yeah. Solidarity, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in April 1968, uh, when the polite voice of civil rights, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was murdered. Uh, The polite conversation was over. And so the Panthers are now, like, at the forefront. Two days later, during the riots that spread across the country after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, some of the Panthers and some cops ended up in a 90-minute shootout. Um, There's different versions of who started it. I don't fucking know. Kind of don't care. Or rather, I support the Panthers either way is where I'm at. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Bobby Hutton, who is 17 at the time, he was the first recruit. He was the treasurer. He he tried to surrender. Um, He stripped down before going outside to show that he was unarmed. And the cops murdered him as he was trying to give himself up. Yeah. And... I don't know. I just sit with that for a minute. It makes me really fucking sad. Uh... Also in 1968, two important things happen. First, the Panthers spread across the country. Like more, the more cities start chapters than I feel like reciting. It's like 36 or something. Uh, their newspaper has a circulation of a quarter of a million copies at this point. And the other main thing that starts in 1968, which I'm really excited to talk about, are the survival programs. Most famously, the free breakfast program, which we'll talk about. On Wednesday. That's my my cliffhanger about breakfast. That's a good one. Thanks. That's a good one. You want to come back because you have to learn about why we spent all that time talking about breakfast. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Top of the show. They do so much cool shit the second half of this. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, also cool are the things that you want to talk about here at the end of the episode. Ooh. If... If you listen to the show, you probably like really, really radical acts. My current radical act is to help a friend launch a production company that seeks to rewrite the codes by which we make film. Doing this in a number of ways. We are studying and learning a lot about um, New Zealand and the UK's film laws, which have really strict laws about how long you can be on set, what a break looks like, how people get paid. And we're launching this by... Crafting a film, it's called Dinner. It is a satirical horror film about the way toxic work environments follow you home. <laughs> uh, it's very funny. It's super dark and twisty. Uh, I'm elated to be making this film. I'm making it with um, friends from college. I went to film school. Uh, they went on to graduate from AFI and uh, work for a bunch of different production companies around town. And they've all, you know, all of us have been like, We want to get back to our art. So this is our chance to do that and hopefully create some change. So we are raising money on a website. It's called Seed and Spark, S-E-E-D and Spark, Mm -hmm. S-P-A-R-K. If you head over there, you can just type in dinner in the search bar. Type in my name, Joelle Monique. It's J-O-E-L-L-E-M-O-N-I-Q-U-E. And you can do a couple of things. So if you want to donate, that's so lovely. and, And we appreciate it we are about 30 percent funded we have the time of this drops 
maybe 35 days-ish left to raise the money. We have, I think, about $8,000 left to go. Okay. Somewhere in there. So we're trucking along. We just got a grant for $1,500. Um, you can also just follow it. If you follow it, that helps us become eligible for more grants. It's a huge help and we love a follow. Or you can just share the link with your buddies and be like, hey, this cool person is making a film. Maybe support them. Um, you can learn about our cast and crew and our goals on the website. So it's just seedandspark.com. There's also a lot of other films if you want to support indie filmmakers on there in a time when our industry is going through quite a lot of upheaval. Here's an opportunity for folks to literally launch and hopefully support long-term careers in independent filmmaking. Yeah. That's my spiel. Okay. That is a good spiel and going to be way too necessary in the very, very near future. Mm-hmm. Maybe the studio system will collapse. <laughs> oh, no. Where would I get my... Oh, no, my... this giant corporate entity. Yeah. Gone. What, there's no internet where we could just launch films of dope independent people, and there's a lot of little indie cinema houses that could screen them. And what if we had regional cinema? Look at what Bollywood's doing. It's pretty cool. Regional cinema. I have a lot of hopes cool. for our future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to follow me, I quit Twitter. So you can't follow me there. I mean, you still can. Hey. I didn't delete it. Well, actually, Twitter went away. I didn't quit Twitter. Twitter just gave stopped existing. Um, but I will not continue on X because my quality of life has improved already in the week that I am not constantly shown transphobes. And you can find me on Instagram, which is Margaret Kiljoy. And then you can also find me on Substack now. That's like the main way I'm doing a lot of my like writing. And if you want to keep up with the kinds of things I used to talk about on Twitter, like um, community preparedness or... little history bits that didn't fit into here it's margaretkilljoy.substack.com and twice a month i do a free post that like is like more matters to the larger audience and then twice a month i also do a like more personal post right now i'm writing a bunch of memoirs so if you want to hear about me dropping out of college to be a street kid and try and fight capitalism you can read about it on my Substack. sophie what do you got uh just follow at cool zone media on all the platforms we still exist on and um we do have our ad free subscription channel that is currently on apple and i think in just a couple weeks will be available for android and non-apple users yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, more on that soon so just look up cooler zone media and uh yeah and you know pet a dog if they want you to yeah and don't if it's a stranger dog don't start by sticking your hand directly at the dog's face Please yeah. don't do it. Yeah. Don't, don't don't run up to dogs on the street unless they've you've been told you can. Yeah. All right. We'll see you all Wednesday. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? 
Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.